Hey, so welcome. This is uh, episode one of the Sydney Institute of Marine Science's new podcast series. Um, and, and in this, we want to explore uh, ideas of, of marine conservation, you know, and, and, and probably more importantly, you know, is it too late to act? You know, there's so, there's so much, uh, you know, volatility in, in what we see in climate change and ocean change. And so, you know, we're getting together a really great uh, group of speakers, you know, who are going to delve into some of these, uh, these topics with us. And, and I think, you know, share with us some very interesting ideas. And today, it's my great pleasure to introduce really one of the VIPs uh, at SIMS. Um, John Preston, uh, he, he's the founder of the Exilium Award, you know, he, he's, he's a great um, philanthropist, you know, who, who's really passionate about um, marine causes, and so John, with that, welcome. Oh, thank you, Brent, so nice to be here in your offices, I wish it was a beautiful day out there, but uh, I've seen how great a view you normally have, so, but really pleased to be part of this uh, podcast series that you've created. Yeah, and look, yeah, we're, we're sort of. I think we're we're very uh, we're very hopeful that uh, we get an attraction on it, and and you know more importantly, it, it's just catalyzing a, a wider conversation, uh, you know, with people who might be following us. So, John, you've had a really interesting, I, I guess, um, you know, history and career, and I won't sort of, uh, you know, steal your thunder, but you did start studying uh, marine biology at university, uh, you know, out of school. To just talk to me about how that happened, and and then then your journey past that. Yeah, I think um, like everything, everything for me is sort of it just. I've either stumbled into it or just been very lucky at times. So my initial uh, foray into working out what I wanted to do at university was to actually study zoology. And my brother turned around to me and said, oh, that's boring, do something more interesting. So I thought harder about it and um, fell into marine biology and went to Liverpool University, one of, I think, was five unis in the, the UK that did marine biology. And you spent two years in the mainland and then one year in the Isle of Man which was a, an amazing experience being in, in part of a, a full operating marine station. And I absolutely fell in love with marine biology. Um, I was offered a PhD in lobster fish farming, but I declined and thought, no, uh, the urge to go traveling and explore the world was more, more, more fulfilling. So I did that and then ended up back in London and landed a tremendous job in media and advertising. And I worked there for a few years, and, but the lure of um, the Barrier Reef and Australia travel really brought me back to, to, to not back, but to come and join this amazing country in 89. I moved to Sydney. I did get to dive on the Barrier Reef a number of times, but also landed into another fantastic job in advertising in Sydney and really didn't look back. And over the course of many years, I worked for multiple different companies, but I the turning point for me was in 2003 when I set up my own business in media and advertising that then over time became attractive enough that a big multinational agency decided to buy my company and I worked with them until December 2019, thankfully left at exactly the right time to avoid all the hoo-ha with COVID, but it also left me in a place of going, well, where next? I've been very successful in business. I'm not sure I really want to work anymore, but maybe it's time to give back. And working with a, a life coach at the time, we positioned the fact that I really wanted to leave some kind of legacy and really go back to the passion of marine biology, which I've left moribund for the last 30 years. So hence, out of that, I set up um, the foundation Auxilium. And I think one of the other stimulating points for me was I watched a uh, film back in 2020 called 2040 by Damon Gamow, and it's all about how the, 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 the elements of what we have today can actually help the environment now as well as in the future. And there's a scene in that uh, film where he's recounting the errors of our ways in the 20s and how we um, really didn't do enough about climate. And his daughter says, what were you thinking? 
And I thought to myself, what a great comment. I don't want to be a dad that gets harassed by my daughters saying, what did you do about the environment, dad? So here I am with Auxilium, the foundation to help the environment. Well, wow, that's a, a fascinating you know, career and journey, and I think, you know, more importantly, life, uh, John. And, and like, I think one of the interesting things, and maybe I might just get you to, to comment on a little bit more, but, you know, you started your career in science and, and you know, it was, you know, sort of 40-odd years ago, and, yeah. and, and, you know, you've kind of, you've, you've gone back and you've joined the scientific community, you know, 40 years later, and, and what, what have you seen the differences between you know, that period of time? Um, you know, for me, I had a, a reasonably similar experience, and, and this profound change, but it's also quite the same. Mm. And I just wonder what your observations are. I think my, my observation would be there's just a, a huge amount of scale around the operations in marine sciences now. We, I think the, the marine station I worked with uh, in the Isle of Man was very parochial and working on isolated projects. From what I'm seeing inside, so outside of looking in, is that these projects that you're working on, particularly even at Sims, do have shared knowledge. It's almost like more of an open source approach to research yep. and findings from Canada or the States can also be affected and, and utilised here in Australia. I think the benefit I've had of working in uh, well, being a student of marine sciences is at least I understand the language when I'm talking to fantastic re researchers and professors and I get a lot out of, I buzz out of those conversations. Yeah, nice. Yeah, look, I think yeah, that is one of the, the great things about Sims. You know, it's a very unique um, operation within Australia, just because you know we're, we're a partnership between you know the four or four of the major Sydney universities, um, and people. It's kind of this. It's created this really nice environment where people don't have to collaborate, but they choose to do yeah. it. Um, and that, that that sharing of knowledge, just for, for someone like me, I've only been here now for a few months. Coming in has been just really, really wonderful to see, and, and you know how just I think unencumbered that, that, that sharing culture is and then how it takes a science forward. I think that is one of the things I've seen as a change. Yeah, good. Um, let's talk a little bit about, about Exilium, you know, um, how to come about and, and you know, you know what, what are you trying to achieve with it and why is it important? Well, I think the biggest fact I found when I started looking at the world of philanthropy, I was quite disgusted to find that actually of the total philanthropy pool of all the dollars that get into any charity, only 4% was put into the environment. And then if you then dissect that and go, well, what was contributed to the oceans? Was well, pretty much a trickle, tiny amount. So when I established Auxilium, I went, okay, what's its mandate? Well, the name Auxilium is actually Latin for help or assist. So I'm here to help, but with 100% focus on the environment and a real deep focus on the oceans was the priority. And we've got involved with a number of organisations. I tried to limit it to say, let's say five and go deeper into the relationship so we can contribute more but also get involved more. And those five are Taronga Zoo, where I help with the turtle rehabilitation in their hospital, Greenpeace on a number of projects and campaigns, World Wildlife Fund, um, a great organisation called the Ocean Impact Organisation, and of course, Sims. And um, what I try and get out of that is a combination of contributing funds contributing my time and, and strategy help where it's needed, but also, if I can, get my hands wet and dirty in the experience of what the scientists are up to as well. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we, we recently had a chat, and one of the things you mentioned was uh, the driver where, you know, in early career researchers, they've just spent years and years and years in university, and then, and then 
the first thing they've got to do is really go and ch- try and chase funding to pr- progress any of the science, and and you saw that as as, as a real challenge to, to solve, and and certainly that seed funding uh, approach with Exilium, you know, addresses that. You know, what have you seen in terms of you know being able to seed those ideas and watch them grow? Well, I think coming coming back to your point about I, I literally was naive. I thought PhD great, you now can get all the money will flow for grants, but you're at the bottom of the the stockpile, and it was really working with Sims team on a really collaborative nature to come up with the Early Career Researcher Kickstarter Fund, um, and then realising that what would, what did we want that fund to be used for? Well, it was really primarily focused on the Sydney Harbour, uh, urban developed areas, but also um, nearby coastline, and trying to connect the dots between the shifting environment and what its impact is having on the species of our area, but also what urbanisation is doing to our areas. And so that whole thing of conservation and rehabilitation of the, the areas in which we live and enjoy um, is really a bit of a focus of what that career research uh, investment is for. Yeah, that's great. I mean, look, you know, that's one of the, the key elements of SIMS. You know, we, we, you know there, there is the hard science element here where we're trying to group, you know, you know, support the progress of overall scientific knowledge, but, but really, you know, we're at the coalface of probably not only conservation, but more importantly, restoration, mm-hmm. you know, finding those, those, those heavily impacted <coughs> environments and, and you know, really being able to, tr- to try and you know, drive a positive change within them. Yeah, hopefully so that you know we leave we leave Sydney Harbour in a better shape it is tomorrow than it is today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I guess you know you, you just touched on your know, Greenpeace is one of your passions, and and um, you know if you, you've just been uh, on the Rainbow Warrior recently, um, you know between uh, Exmouth and Broome, um, and and you know part of that of that voyage, you know I guess he's he's looking at, at some of the impacts of uh, of nearshore ocean drilling. Mm. Um, you know, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges today in marine conservation and, you know, what, how can we do more? Yeah, that was a really illuminating experience being on that vessel, being uh, surrounded by people whose lifeblood is all about improving the environment and drawing attention to areas of need. And um, I think that out of conversations there, but also my own thoughts, I'm not sure there's one big issue that, is, that, that we need to address in conservation. I think there's three pillars that we need to look at. One is... I've already touched on it, the lack of funding in philanthropy, but actually the lack of funding from the government and corporates who really need to change their focus on on helping build sustainable oceans. The other factor I think is time. It's amazing what's been achieved just recently in terms of um, treaties being written to protect 30% of our oceans. Um, The Queensland government, I think in the last two days we just announced they're going to spend $160 million changing their fishing techniques and, and, and relieving netting. And today, I just read that Macquarie Island has been declared a marine park, which is brilliant. But it just feels like all of those should have been done 10 years ago. And the feeling is that all these announcements are being made, but it takes so long for them to get implemented. And I just really hope that everybody's getting their skates on because we are running out of time. And the last part is um, awareness of people and their surrounds. I think when people think about marine life, they think about what's on their doorstep, they think about the coast, the corals, and areas that they interact with, maybe fishing and so on, swimming. But they really haven't got a lot of awareness about the bigger deal about what's happening in the oceans, and the fact that every second breath we take comes from the oceans. And you'd think we'd give it a lot more care than we should. And a lot of that, I think, is just because it's sight unseen. And so building the awareness amongst people about what the plight of the oceans are and make it more obvious that they need to 
ideally donate, but also let's get the government shaking and moving in terms of doing things a lot faster and moving forward. Yeah, look, I mean, <coughs> great insights, John. I think one of the things, you know, one of my key takeaways from, from sort of that, and I think, you know, in business, you know, in business, I think, you know, constraint, artificial constraint drives innovation or, or perhaps not even artificial constraint. You know, if you're in a small business, you're constrained with, you know, time and resources. And, and I think we are getting to a point where we've ignored it for so long that, that, you know, that time now is becoming the most critical driver of change. Yeah. So, you know, we've seen these things that have taken decades sometimes or, you know, years and decades to, to, to come to fruition. And now it feels like it's all happening at once. Um, and the focus really turning, you know, it's the UN uh, decade of the ocean. We're three years into it, really four years into it now. Yeah. And going too quickly. And it's going too quickly. And, you know, and I think it is a profound time to drive change. But as you rightly say, I think, you know, awareness is key and, and how we drive that, those sort of educational programs. I think probably... For me, the one thing that gives me hope, and, and you know, we we do talk, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot about hope, and, and I'll sort of touch on it again in a second. But I think just the changing population dynamics, you know, I think, you know, if you if you go back, you know, 30, 40 years, you know, so few people cared, mm-hmm. and you look at you know the younger generations today, you know, millennials and Gen Z. And just so so much of a greater overall percentage, you know, have a deep care about and commitment yeah. about the world around them, not just the environment, but community and lifting other people up. And so, you know, I think, you know, the more we can bring those younger voices into the conversation faster, mm. I think, you know, and combine with you know the, the rate of change we're currently seeing, I think you know, we give ourselves a much better shot, uh, you know, in, in doing something profound. Um, it takes me on to the next thing. I mean, we do talk a lot about hope, and you know, we go to any any marine you know conservation or any environmental conservation uh, forum, and, and you know, hope is the thing that we pin our hopes on. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess where we're at today, and it feels like it's minutes to, minutes to midnight. Is that enough? And, and you know, from your perspective, you know, what else can we do to, to really drive change? Yeah, I've, I've, I think about hope uh, in a way very similar to what you've just mentioned about people and the generations and their involvement in climate and the way I look at it is um, there's a whole bunch and a large portion of the population that kind of aware or I should say there's a spectrum of understanding of, of climate and its impact on ocean on, on the environment and there are a bunch of people who are reasonably aware of climate in fact they see it on the news it used to be many years ago you'd, you'd watch the news and get the weather at the end. It's now often in the headlines because some climatic changes impacting poor populations. And they kind of then get frightened. And those people are tending to put their head in the sand. So for them, maybe the message of hope is really important to give them something to latch onto, to feel that actually something is being done about this. I can feel better about it and maybe I can find a way to contribute. And then there's a whole section of other people, and thankfully they've grown in the last four or five years, who are very aware of what's going on in the climate and its impact on the environment. And yes, they are hopeful, but I think what they're doing is taking action as well. And I kind of see a combination of hope and action. And and the actions that people need to think about doing and are doing is using their vote when it comes to elections, but also driving local community messaging on pushing better environmental laws and really campaigning for that. And I reckon as simple as signing petitions. I mean, the Macquarie Island thing that the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences campaigned for very successfully was driven by 
people signing and putting their foot forward and writing letters to their local um, uh, community and environmental ministers, and you got a result. So that kind of action helps. I think there's also, for those beginners in the climate, actions that they can do at home, and we're well documented about all the things we can do to become more sustainable in home. And the big one for us, I guess, is in, in the world of sims and marine life is be really careful about what you are selecting to put on your plate. Choose fish that's sustainable and being carefully managed rather than being you know, swept out through the sea on horrible nets and killing corals and dredging everywhere. And you know, there's a lot of talk about the sea spiracy uh, program, but at least it raised issues of, and in a very visual way of how fisheries are badly managing the oceans. And therefore, we can empower ourselves to select the best fish for our family to eat. Um, so I think there's simple changes that we can make, but the main message here is hope and action need to come together, and unfortunately, really quickly. Yep. Oh, look, I completely agree, John. I mean, one, I, I heard a really interesting stat this week. Um, you know, one year on now from, from the banning of, of single-use plastic bags in, mm. in uh, supermarkets. You know, and some of that come through through you know legislative legislative change, but but a lot of that was grassroots for environmental campaigners who said, hey, this is a bad thing. You know, one year on from that, we've got 70% less microplastics in Sydney Harbour. Mm. You know, and I think nice. you know, the one thing that does give me hope in that is is that you know the environment and the planet is resi- it's resilient and robust, and if you give it that time to um, you know, t- to, to heal itself, yeah. I think that will happen quickly. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. I was just talking to the World Wildlife Fund they, 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 up in Queensland. They took away a load of the drift nets and, and bought fishery licenses actually in certain areas. And within three years, in fact, two years, the local fishermen and um, recreational fishermen are saying they're pulling out bigger fish than they've ever seen before, 25% bigger than two years ago. So, the, yeah, exactly, the oceans are resilient. It takes two to three years for the stocks of certain types of fish to come back to the fore and potentially corals if they're well looked after. Yeah, yeah, look, I, yeah. That's, I, I think that, that's one of the, the, the things that gives me hope. You know, it's, it's future generations, but mm-hmm. also just the resilience and, you know, if we give, give the planet a break, it will bounce back. Um, John, look, it's been an amazing chat, and, and you know we're, we're really thankful to have you, you know, as 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 a as a key partner with with Sims. Um, you know, I see it really commonly in in a lot of people who've had successful careers, um, and and not only that, beyond the the end of their careers, you know, they're lifelong learners. They're people who, you know, don't have a fixed mindset. They they've got a high degree of curiosity, and so a question I always love to ask is, you know, you know, what are you reading right now, and, and why is it interesting to you? Yeah, well, I think from a business side of view, yeah, I do try and keep learning, and there are some self-help books that I continually delve into, but I'm very happy to say uh, the book I'm reading right now actually came about because of the, the, the sale that I did with the Greenpeace Rainbow Warrior, and at the end of that, the crew who I got on one with famously gave me a book and signed by all the crew, and it's called Don't Trust, Don't Fear, and Don't Beg, and it's written by Ben Stewart, and what it's about is when um, to raise awareness of um, the oil drilling that was happening in the Arctic back in 2013. Um, they have another vessel called the Arctic Sunrise, and it forayed into the area and literally boarded a Russian oil rig with a view to make a statement to the world about how can you possibly drill in this most pristine environment. Unfortunately, the Russians didn't see it that way and took offence and basically boarded their boat with commandos, commandeered the boat, took all the crew and put them into prison and trialled them for piracy. 
Now, in the case of piracy in, in Russia, 99% of people go to jail and stay in jail. They're up for nearly a 15-year term. Um, but as, I, as I'm discovering through the book, through a lot of legal work, but also actually millions of people signing petitions to raise awareness about what the Russians are doing, they're basically set free. However, they had to stay there for 10 months. So here are a group of people putting their li lives literally on the line to raise awareness. And we talk about that spectrum of where are you on the environmental and climate cause. Well, they were right at the pointy end. And they were willing to do that to raise awareness about this pristine area that we love called the Arctic. And thank God they did, um, because it brought world attention to that, to that area. And, and the work they're doing is phenomenal. Apparently, well, it does. It reads like a thriller, yep. and it's really interesting and exciting. So, if anybody hasn't seen it before, check it out. And just added to my uh, to read list, which is very extensive. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I collect and, and um, you know work through them at the right time. But um, John, thank you so much for your time. I know it's valuable, and and again, thank you for your support with Sims. And um, you know, hopefully, we get to to uh, come back and do this again. Great, love to. Thank you for your time as well. Thank you. And, and look, uh, that wraps up uh, episode one of, of uh, the Sims podcast on uh, the marine environment and conservation and you know, what we can do to, to uh, manage and protect it. Thank you. Thank you.